I would like for you to take your Bibles and turn once again to John's Gospel, chapter 19. And we will be examining verses 31 through verse 10 of chapter 20. Not exhaustively, but hopefully enough that we will grasp some amazing truths that the Spirit of God has for us. While you're turning there, if you were to go to downtown Nashville, for example, and ask people just randomly the question, what are some of the things that you associate with Easter? Most people would say things like Easter eggs, bunnies, Easter egg hunts, springtime, those types of things. And of course, all of that is typical of our pagan culture, a culture that is theologically illiterate and has no understanding of the gospel. So this morning, what I want to do is help you understand what Easter is really all about. Now, for most of you, this is going to be a review, even though I'm sure there will be some things that you've never really contemplated. But in order to understand what really happened at Easter, I wish to draw your attention to John's eyewitness account of the burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, a fascinating narrative that really points us to the glory and the power of the Son of God, which is John's primary emphasis in his gospel. And I pray that each of you will embrace these truths and ponder them in your heart, because together they exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why we're here. Most of you are here because you are starving for the glory and the greatness of God so that you can transcend this dark and decaying culture that is hell-bent on mocking him and all who belong to him. In fact, I was reading this week uh, in his book, Dark Agenda, The War to Destroy Christian America, Jewish author and New York Times best selling author David Horowitz, who, by the way, is a self-proclaimed agnostic, exposes, quote, the left's calculated efforts to create a secular socialist society. He describes how, quote, the rising attacks on Christians and their beliefs threaten all Americans because they are attacks on the founding principles of America's democracy. He argues the liberal establishment and their radical allies envision a new millennium in which Christianity is banished, end quote. And of course, God has made it clear that that is, that is Satan's agenda in the world. It always has been, always will be. And we know that it is basically politically correct to malign Christians, especially those that believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation and that Jesus was the Son of God who came to die as a substitute for sinners and take upon himself the just wrath of God. People that believe that are considered to be fools. And to believe that Jesus actually died and was resurrected in three days is not only considered by most to be a religious myth, but... Many believe that that is a sure sign of some kind of mental disorder that renders a person 
unworthy of serious consideration, especially in matters pertaining to morality or modern religion, but then to agree with Scripture, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 1, that the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and then to also believe that these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day. Oh, my goodness, that is the height of insanity for most people. And to be sure, the attacks are relentless and they can weaken even the most robust faith. And so it's important for us as we come together to be reminded of these great truths about our Lord and our Savior. Now, as we come to John's account, what we see here is the glory of the Messiah, the glory of Christ put on display. And all of this points to the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, which obviously proves yet again that the Bible is the Word of God. And this morning, as we look at this passage of Scripture before us, I want to do so under three simple headings. We're going to look at the providence of God in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. Now, providence is a term that sometimes we use and people may not understand. So let me give you um, a definition. Providence is the doctrine that God is continually involved in all his creations, sustaining all things and causing all things to function according to their intended purposes. And by directing all his creation, including man and angels, and all of the events of history, he is ultimately accomplishing his intended purposes, which is ultimately to bring glory to himself. And we see this in John's eyewitness account in his narrative, beginning with, number one, the providence of God in Jesus' death. So let's look at verse 31 of chapter 19. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation. Well, let's stop there a second. What is he talking about here? Why is this important? Well, he's speaking of the day of the preparation of the Passover, which celebrated that time of deliverance when God delivered his people out of Egyptian bondage. And we know that in 1446 BC in Egypt, the blood of a lamb was spread on the doorposts and lintel of the house of every Jewish home to protect that house from the angel of death that visited every home in Egypt. And wherever that angel of death saw the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, he would pass over and he would spare the firstborn. We read about this, for example, in Exodus 12, beginning in verse 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Later in verse 23, we read, For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, 
the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come in to your houses to smite you. I might add that Jewish people around the world are celebrating Passover right now. It began on sunset on April 19th, and it will go through nightfall on April 27. Now back to the text in verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, you must understand, by Jewish reckoning, the Sabbath, which is Saturday, began at sundown on Friday evening. And this means that Jesus was crucified on Friday, the day before the preparation of the Sabbath, which on that occasion, we see here, was a special Sabbath because it occurred during the Passover feast. And because the second day of Passover, according to Leviticus 23.11, fell on the Sabbath, that meant that that day was devoted to a very important sheaf offering. That would also include, according to Leviticus 23.12, the offering of a male lamb, a year old, without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Now, friends, obviously, it was no accident that Jesus... The unblemished Lamb of God offered himself up as a sacrifice at this precise time, at this precise occasion, a time and an occasion that for centuries all of the sacrifices of the Mosaic system pointed Now, it was the custom of the Jews, according to Mosaic law, to never allow a person to remain hanging on a gibbet or, or a gallows overnight after an execution, lest that body, which was in their mind cursed by God, defile the land. So being the self-righteous lawkeepers that they were, they asked Pilate to have Jesus' legs broken so he would die quickly and they could dispose of him and thus honor God. Hypocrisy knows no bounds, right? Now, normally, the Romans would leave crucified men and women on the cross until they died, which often took several days. And then, as a final disgrace, and as to a warning of any other potential insurrectionists or criminals, they would leave the body, that decaying body, on the, cro- on the cross until it was completely devoured by vultures. But if they needed to hasten the death, they would break the victim's legs with an iron bar or a heavy mallet, a practice called in Latin, curifragium. And when that happened, the the sudden excruciating pain and loss of blood, combined with the victim's inability to lift his body with his legs to allow air into his lungs, would hasten death through suffocation. You see, when the legs were broken, the chest cavity would then bear the total pressure of the body's weight. He would hang there in the form of a V with full weight on his arms. Imagine the excruciating pain, the, with the, just the tension between the, the arms and the, and the chest muscles, producing excruciating tension, and then death would come very quickly. So, to be good law keepers and not jeopardize their righteous standing before God, 
by violating their high Sabbath, the Jews, verse 31, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they, that they might be taken away. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Folks, this is astounding when you think about it. As the sun set on the day Christ died, John makes it perfectly clear that God's perfect lamb fulfilled all of the important Old Testament scriptures. That Jesus, as the true Passover lamb that God provided, did not have any of his bones broken, which was part of the, the Old Testament law. Um, Exodus twelve forty six. And by the way, by not breaking the bones, there seems to be a symbolism here of the importance of unity in the Old Testament covenant community and later the body of Christ, unity in the body of Christ in the sense of the church. And it's amazing also to think that even as God provided a sacrifice for Abraham as a substitute for his son Isaac, God provided a substitute for us. And he slew his own perfect lamb who died in our place. And by the provision of the blood of Christ, when the judgment comes, he will see the blood of his son and pass over. In other words, the blood covers all our sins. The angel of judgment will pass over all who trust in God's lamb to atone for their sins. All who have genuine saving faith. A faith, by the way, which is validated by a love for Christ in obedience to his word and to his will. Now, Jesus was hung upon the cross, we know, at the third hour, which would have been 9 a.m., according to Mark 15, 25. And he died at that night hour at 3 p.m., according to verse 34. So he was on the cross for a total of six hours before he voluntarily gave up his life as he said he would. A point John makes very clear in his account. Recall in John 10, beginning in verse 17, Jesus declared, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. So it was a relatively short period of time before Jesus gave up his life. Now, no doubt the prior beatings, the loss of blood from the crown of thorns, uh, the double floggings, the unimaginable suffering associated with sin-bearing would have contributed to his early death. And you will recall, isn't it interesting, in verse 30 of chapter 19, there was a final shout that he gave on the cross. It was a shout. To Telestai, it is finished that he still had the strength to cry out as he did, reveals that he was not totally drained of life. In fact, when Joseph of Arimathea came to Pilate to ask for Jesus' body, remember Pilate didn't think that there had been enough time for him to die, that he, that he was probably still alive. So he had to summon a centurion for confirmation, as we read in Mark's account. So John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Gave up, by the way, could literally be translated, handed over his spirit. No one took his life from him. He gave it up on his own authority. 
Jesus in that moment, you might say, summoned death to serve him. John does not say he died. He says he gave up his spirit. John is emphasizing the voluntary nature of the act. Augustine said it correctly, quote, he gave up his life because he willed it. When he willed it and as he willed it. But now, don't neglect here the, the, the providence of God at work, which points to the glory and the majesty of Christ, the Son of God. Jesus had predicted that he would be killed and the third day he would rise again, Luke 18.33. And for this to be fulfilled, think about it, he had to be buried the same day he died. And once again, what is fascinating is to see how God uses wicked men to execute orders that he has made in eternity past. Yet another testimony to the fact that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel. So the soldiers come and they break the legs of the men on either side of Jesus, but they look at Jesus and they see that he is already dead, so they don't break his legs, verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. Since the ancients understood that the body was made up of blood and water, the point that is being made here is that Jesus was, in fact, physically dead. This was a fact that John wanted to underscore because there was a heresy that was going around at that time called docetism, from dokeo in Greek, which means it seems... In other words, they believed that Jesus only appeared to have a body. It seemed as though he had a body, that he was not really God incarnate. And, of course, this was a lie that developed from the Greek dualistic philosophy, um, which viewed matter as inherently evil, that God could not be associated with matter, and that God, being perfect and infinite, could, could not suffer and obviously, that heresy would, would deny the incarnation of Christ, and it would disallow the fact that Jesus truly suffered and died on the cross and that he rose again. So for the docetist, Jesus never really took on human flesh. It only seemed as though he did. He only appeared to be human. And likewise, he seemed to be dead, but he really wasn't. And like all heretics, they wanted nothing to do with Christ. And so they created and even enjoyed this demonic doctrine that would discredit him. Well, John witnessed the rise of that satanic, satanically inspired heresy, and he was going to have no part of it. And so as an eyewitness, notice what he says in verse 35. And he who has seen has testified, referring to himself. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Now, back to the idea of the blood and the water that flowed from Jesus' side. It may well be that that was symbolic of both life and cleansing that flowed from Jesus' death. We know biblically that the blood of Jesus is the basis of eternal life for every believer. And we know that it purifies us from every sin, right? 1 John 1, 7. While water is symbolic of cleansing... As we read in like John 3 and verse 5, and it's symbolic of life, John 4, 14, and also the spirit, John 7, 38 and 39. All of these 
incomparable blessings, dear friends, are conditioned upon the death of the Lamb of God. They flowed from the lifting up of the Son of God. And it is this verse and these themes that inspired Fanny J. Crosby to write the first verse of her hymn, Near the Cross, which says, Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain, free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. Other theologians like Burge have added that, quote, it is possible but not certain that the evangelist is alluding to Exodus 17, especially verse 6, where we read, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. He adds, John has already used water to refer to the Holy Spirit and is apparently alluded to the two water from the rock episodes, Exodus 17, Numbers 20. So in John's gospel, the long-suffering Yahweh himself, the rock of his people, discloses himself in his word and is stricken for his people that they may receive the promised spirit, end quote. And by the way, this is what inspired Augustus Toplady to write, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. So the soldiers pierced Jesus' side, but he was spared the curifragium. The curifragium. They did not break his legs. Verse 36, for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. And here he quotes Psalm 3420 that was written in 1000 BC, over a thousand years earlier. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Verse 37, and again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Quoting Zechariah 1210 that was written 520 years BC. A prophecy that speaks of a future repentant Israel that will confess Jesus as Messiah when he returns in glory. That text says, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Then they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is yet another prophecy, dear friends, that points to the deity of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which John proves over and over again. So we see the providence of God in his death, which affirms his deity and his majesty. But we secondly see the providence of God in his burial. Notice verse 38. And these things Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Now, the synoptic writers tell us that Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, a wealthy man that was looking for the kingdom of God. One, he was a man that, that, that did not agree with the decision that the others made to condemn Jesus. But both Matthew and John state that he was a good and righteous man, that he was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. By the way, I am aware firsthand that there are Jews, for example, in Israel, especially in one school that I'm aware of, where there are Orthodox Jewish rabbis who believe that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, 
but out of fear, they have to believe in secret. And some are enrolled in online Bible studies so that they will not be discovered. So perhaps out of shame, mixed with love, Joseph of Arimathea comes to Pilate, asks for the body of Jesus. And because of his rank, his request was granted. Mark says in Mark 15, 43, he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate. You get the scene. And once again, dear friends, we see the providence of God orchestrating all of these events in history in order to fulfill his decrees made in eternity past. Now think about this. You see, under Roman law, no man who was crucified for sedition would be taken down from the cross until the vultures had picked every shred of flesh off of his body. Only then would the body be be buried among other criminals. Moreover, the Jews would only bury criminals outside the walls of Jerusalem. So these facts had to be transcended in some way. And John wants us to see that this was no ordinary man. This was the Son of God whose death and now burial was foreordained and predicted in Old Testament prophecy. Isaiah 53 and verse 9, the prophet declared that though Messiah's grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Now what's interesting is John goes on to introduce to us another member of the Sanhedrin that was also a secret disciple of Jesus that joined Joseph in the preparation of Jesus' body and burial. His name was Nicodemus, and you remember that story. Verse 39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Now, understand, the Jews did not embalm like the Egyptians, but used fragrant spices to partially cover up the stench of putrefaction. So Nicodemus brings about a hundred pounds of this mixture of spices. It would have been in powder form that would have been layered in strips of cloth and wrapped around Jesus' body. They would lay, put layer upon layer and include this powdery mixture. And then there would be a final covering layer. Obviously, neither Joseph nor Nicodemus or the other women who would later on come to the empty tomb really expected Jesus to literally rise from the dead as he promised. So they prepared his body for the grave. Verse 40, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings, wrappings with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. And then we read in verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because the, of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. My, my, what a coincidence. Little did Joseph and Nicodemus know that by burying Jesus while it was still Friday, Before the Sabbath, they were fulfilling God's eternal plan that he had decreed in eternity past and set into motion and through his providence was working even that day. Matthew 12, verse 40. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see, Jesus was buried before sundown on Friday and rose again on Sunday. And according to Jewish reckoning, part of a day would be considered a whole day. So Jesus was in the tomb three days, part of Friday, all of Saturday, and a part of Sunday morning. And it's interesting that the writer of Hebrew explains that this was pictured when Isaac was delivered from the altar. And he had been given up to death three days before, according to Genesis 22. And according to Hebrews 11 and verse 19, Abraham considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead from which he also received him, referring to Isaac, back as a type. Moreover, I find it fascinating that Yahweh delivered his covenant people from the Egyptians by parting the Red Sea three days after the slaying of the Paschal Lamb. Yet another picture of our deliverance from the penalty, the power, and someday the presence of sin through Christ in whom we have died and been raised again. Folks, let me pause for a second. Only the most calloused heart could deny the obvious. And that is that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah of Old Testament prophecy. So we've seen the providence of God in his death And in his burial, and now finally in his resurrection, notice verse 1 of chapter 20. On the first day of the week, which, by the way, became known as the Lord's Day. For example, Revelation 1 and verse 10. The day believers set aside to worship Christ and to celebrate his resurrection, just as the first century saints did. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now, the other gospel writers indicate that there were other women who also made their way to the tomb that morning, but Mary must have gone ahead of them. She must have been there more quickly because the text says she arrived while it was still dark. But we know that the others got there at sunrise, and it would appear that this dear woman longed to be near the body of her precious Savior who had delivered her from seven demons, remember? And who had revealed his great love for her and others in such astounding ways. And I also find this remarkable. I mean, think about it. According to Matthew 28 and verse 2, there had just been a great earthquake. There had just been a great earthquake. And it's dark. And she's unaccompanied by a male. And there are thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem because it's Passover. They're sleeping all over everywhere. And yet because of her love and her devotion to Christ, she was compelled to venture forward to the tomb. I'm always moved when I see people who love Christ in such a way. And what a shock to see the stone rolled away, to see an empty tomb. Can you imagine what went through her mind? And no soldiers? What is going on? It's still dark. So she doesn't look in the tomb. She couldn't have seen anything. Verse 2, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, referring to John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Now you must understand that grave robbing was not uncommon in those days. 
And given the, the violent animosity that people had toward Jesus by, by so many people, Mary's conclusion would have been justified. And while she goes to get the other disciple, or the disciples, the other women come to the tomb, and they encounter the angels who said, according to Matthew 28, 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. I love this phrase. He is not here, for he is risen. <laughs> Just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. And then later we know when Mary returns, John says in John 20, beginning in verse 11, that she was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stopped and looked into the tomb and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. And when she had said this, she turned around and behold, Jesus standing there. The text goes on to say she didn't know it was him, thought it was the gardener until he spoke her name. Now back to our text in John 20 and verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple went forth. And they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. I'm becoming familiar with that with my grandchildren. I can run with them for a while, but somehow they end up leaving me behind. By the way, John was the younger man. We know that, that he lived 60 years longer than Peter, so he beat Peter to the tomb. So it says that he ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. By the way, that, that's consistent with Peter, right? He's just going to charge right ahead. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, folks, John's description of what Peter saw is profoundly significant. Let me tell you why. Their eyewitness account of the linen wrappings that are neatly folded, that neatly folded face, face cloth lying by itself rules out any possibility that the body was stolen by his disciples as the Jewish leaders would later claim. Now think about it. Who on earth would possibly unwrap a corpse and then take all of those layers and wrap them up in the original position and the contour of a body in order to steal the body. It's absurd. And John's description indicates that the wrappings were still tightly and rigidly wound around what used to be the body. And now they're lying there undisturbed in their original convolutions. And the face cloth neatly folded and placed by itself. They stole the body? It's ridiculous. Moreover, I would ask you something else. What kind of fool would possibly embark upon a gospel ministry based upon a resurrection lie that they themselves had fabricated? Only those with a severe mental disability would possibly embark upon a, a life-threatening ministry 
based upon hypocrisy, knowing that they had really stolen the body and there really wasn't a resurrection. It's completely absurd. Furthermore, how could so many people be morally transformed by a resurrection narrative they themselves had created and knew to be false? Folks, only a man that is completely insane would die for his own lie. Furthermore, John's witness account, eyewitness account, rules out another explanation that eventually surfaced, and that was the account that says, well, Jesus wasn't really dead, contrary to the testimony of the centurion, by the way, that he was still alive, and he he rallied strength, and he was able to unwrap himself, and then move the stone away, and slip past all the soldiers. You know, if you want me to believe such absurdity, then you must explain how it is that he healed up so quickly that he could appear to his disciples and convince them that he had vanquished death through a resurrection, which really didn't take place, and then live for 40 days before he disappeared into glory. Such an explanation is not only ludicrous, dear friends, it is demonic. For if Jesus did not die, he made no atonement for sin, right? And if he did not die and rise again from the dead, our faith is in vain and we remain in our sins. Finally, I might add that this account of the undisturbed grave clothes rule out the spiritualized interpretation. Maybe you've heard that one. That the resurrection was merely a spiritual continuance of Jesus in the lives of the disciples. That there wasn't a literal resurrection. I've heard this from liberal scholars. I had to sit under some once upon a time. I mean, folks, such willful self-deception can only be affirmed by a person who wants nothing to do with the risen Lord. Dear friends, there is one plausible explanation for all of this. Guess what it is? Jesus rose from the dead. He passed through the the grave clothes and through all of the spices. His body literally dematerialized through them. In a miraculous demonstration of supernatural power that we cannot fathom, The father dematerialized his son's body out of the grave wrappings and out of the stone sepulcher and out of the restrictions of the kind of flesh that we might know. And then he recreated his body into the imperishable, indescribable, eternal habitation of immortal manhood. A a transformation, by the way, that we all await. Now, some will say, well, if he did that, why why such secrecy? Why why did he do that all out in the open and, 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 and make it a spectacle so everybody could see and everybody could believe? I mean, we need proof of such a fanciful claim. Well, first, I might say that the kind of heart that would ask that kind of question is so hardened by sin, there is no explanation that would satisfy it. Nevertheless... I believe the answer is this, dear friends, 
the supernatural work performed by the Father to reconstitute the body of his Son into immortality was far too sacred of an act for human eyes to behold. This was an indescribably personal moment between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It could be likened to the sacred secrecy of the marriage bed. But God did not leave us without witnesses. And there are eyewitness testimonies that are recorded in his word. And yet I might add that the greatest witness of all is the resurrection power that we see manifested when a man or a woman or a boy or a girl comes to saving faith in Christ and they're born again. And this is why we read in Romans 6, beginning in verse 4, we have been buried with him and through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might, what? Walk in newness of life. You want a testimony? There it is. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin for who has died is freed from sin. Oh, what a testimony of the resurrection of Christ. To see a man or a woman or a boy or a girl radically transformed into a new creature. And this is what John wants us to understand. This is what he saw. Verse 8, so the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered. And he saw and believed. In other words, believed that Jesus had in fact been resurrected from the dead. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. For three years, Jesus had taught them this, but they couldn't see it. They wanted a conquering king right then, right there. They wanted the kingdom. They didn't understand that he had to come first to suffer and to die. Verse 10, so the disciples went away again to their homes. Folks, I want to close with just a couple of thoughts that, that strike me. There's so many things, but I, I'm out of time, and I just want to share this with you. We need to remember the implications of the resurrection and the glorification of Jesus Christ for us and understand that the resurrection of Christ exceed the, the importance and the power of every event in history. Perhaps only the actual creation of the universe could rival what happened there. Because within the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ existed the supernatural power source of eternal life and God's eternal kingdom for all who believe. It's for this reason that Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians 1, beginning verse 19, that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe according to the working of his might, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead and made him sit at his right hand in the heavenly places. Folks, do you realize that contained in the resurrection body of Christ was the supernatural seed of resurrection glory for all whom the Father had given him? Literally within him was the power source of the universe, 
It's what Paul called Christ in you, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Think about that. We have been supernaturally, supernaturally united to, to the creator and the sustainer of God's everlasting kingdom. And think how this relates to us. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20, we read that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For as by a man came death, by a man is come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, folks, because we are in Christ, we have been guaranteed a new kind of existence. Remember, Christ's resurrection body was made perfect. It was no longer subject to weakness and to death, but to live eternally. And that's why Paul says that he put on immortality. And therefore, like his resurrection body, ours will be raised imperishable in glory and power, a spiritual body. We will be given a body like Christ, one that is fit for heaven. Unbelievable, isn't it? A body no longer subject to sickness and death and shame and sorrow. No more frailty and temptations. No more limits in the time, space, sphere in which we currently exist. Don't ask me to explain that one. I just know it's going to happen. Within the resurrection body of Christ was the infinite power of the self-existent, pre-existent, uncreated creator of the universe who spoke all things into existence and upholds all things by the word of his power. Folks, this is a force that is infinitely more powerful than anything that man could ever create or even conceive. And to think that one day we will behold him, 1 John 3, 2. Dwelling in a body that looks like a human body. Yet from it will emanate the effulgence of his celestial majesty, the resplendent light of his glory blazing forth with the brilliance of the sun. Oh, the breathless wonder of what it is to be united to Christ, the risen Christ, the source of eternal life for all who believe in the crucified and resurrected Son of God. I pray, dear friends, that each of you have placed your faith in the living Christ, that you trust in the one whose blood will cause the judgment of God to pass over you. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. As we look at scripture, we see that he is holy beyond anything we can imagine. And we are sinful beyond anything we can imagine. That all that we are and all that we do is fundamentally offensive to a holy God. And were it not for his mercy and grace and provision in Christ, we will perish in our sin for eternity. And so I plead with you as a minister of the gospel to believe in Christ and to be saved. Otherwise, you will pay for your sin for eternity. And may it never be said in this life or in the day of judgment or in your life to come that you never heard the gospel because today you have heard it. And God has commanded you to believe. God provided a substitute for us. He slew his own perfect lamb who died in our place. And by the provision of the blood of Jesus, when the judgment day comes, he will see the blood of his son. 
and he will pass over. Dear friends, that's what Easter is all about. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these eternal truths that grip the souls of the redeemed. We know that man could have never have conceived of all of this, but all of this is according to your eternal decrees that you set into motion to ultimately bring glory to yourself. And therefore, we acknowledge that redemption, that salvation is not about us. It's about you. And we give you praise for your saving grace. And I pray that what we have reflected upon here this morning will animate our hearts to further praise, to dedicated service to our Savior and to our King until that day he returns to take us unto himself. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.